think it's time for me to go to the bodybuilding forums. I agree. <laughs> and uh, see what kind of weird thing I can find. Just look through the dregs of the internet for some stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Well, dare we start our show, Welcome to Super Duperstitious? <laughs> I think we should do our show, the Paranormal Podcast, about the science behind the spooky. In that case, I'm Wyatt. And I'm Jake. And uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh-huh. Or if it's welcome your first time listening, back. welcome to that, too. You know, yes, however... Welcome forward. <laughs> yes. Uh, what? <laughs> you have anything to say? <laughs> Wait, for myself? I was blanking, so I didn't know if you had anything to cover with. Yes, I do. Which is to say, welcome back, everybody. <laughs> Great. Last week, if you uh, weren't here... Didn't tune in, were too busy, you know, rubbing the powder from the bottom of your now empty Doritos bag all over your face. <laughs> While you lie naked watching Netflix, we um, covered kind of an easy breezy potpourri. <laughs> or actually, let me try that again. Covered a sleazy breezy potpourri. This week, we're going to dive into another kind of grab bag, but this time it's a House of Horrors items edition version <laughs> i think it's also an odd episode meaning i start that's right but before that i think we could maybe stand to boot up the old nc AAA device and thank another patron i think we could i think we should and i think right. we're going to so the nc AAA device is a machine an arcane computer we uh somehow acquired last spring and we now have a function on it called the pander function which stands for wyatt the patron appreciation neural dive for evaluation of risk couldn't be more obvious essentially we will insert wires from this computer type device into the backs of our heads and we will focus on the name of a patron. And uh, from that, we'll then find out what cryptid or creature in the world that patron should be aware of, on the lookout for, and otherwise uh, cognizant of? I don't know. Sure. Let's turn on it on. Guard. All right, so we have it turned on now. Okay, and uh, let's just plug these into plug the backs in. of our heads. Uh, I have to pantomime it every time. We sure do. <laughs> and we're going to focus on... Michael Shell. Oh. Name sounds familiar, wouldn't you say? Yes. Familiar enough to possibly be a family relation of the show. <laughs> Alright, if we we'll think about Michael, we're going to come up with let's see here. I don't wow. know how to say that. <laughs> Michael, be on the lookout for Shang Lu, also known as Shang Yu. Oh. It's a nine headed snake monster that appears in Chinese mythology. I know you have read the classic of Mountains and Seas, so this will probably not be a surprise to you, but Shang Lu, classically a minister of the snake-like water deity, Gong, devastating the ecology everywhere he goes, leaving nothing but gullies and marshes, devoid of animal life, but presumably full of mud. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. After a lot of destruction and stuff, Shang Lu was eventually killed by Yu the Great, whose other labors included Ending the Great Flood of China. Basically, to avoid Shang Yu, do not go to China. <laughs> avoid, I don't know, gullies and marshes? And if you do, for whatever reason, see a giant snake with nine heads, uh, leave it alone. Just do not approach. Probably your best bet. And if you're practicing social distancing correctly, you should run very little risk of this. Also, maybe watch out for the movie Night at the Museum 3. Does that feature a hydra-like monster? It specifically features a statue of Zhang Lu. Does it for real? It's at the bottom of the page. Oh, I did not read that far. <laughs> and I mean, did not have that part installed in my brain or whatever the fuck. <laughs> So yeah, watch so, out yeah. for the snake tail. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for for contributing, for helping support the show. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, anyone out there who wants to have us stumble through a download of cryptids that they should be uh, aware of and as definitely well. definitely not hit the random page function on the cryptids wiki. Not, not what happened. And then struggle to read it verbatim. Um, please do support us at Patreon dot com slash super duperstitious even a dollar will get you entered into the computer program and our episodes and our hearts yeah absolutely more importantly so uh thank you and back to the show let's unplug oh. all righty so allow me 
to kick us off. Mm-hmm. Jake, I think I mentioned this to you, mm-hmm. but have you, before I mentioned it, heard of Codex Gigas? I don't think so. AKA the Evangelical America's Worst Nightmare. Ooh. All right. Well, I will tell you a bit about it. Um, and you can ask questions and you can go, huh? And I can say something else. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, first, some background the story. According to a legend that was already recorded in the Middle Ages, there lived a monk who broke his monastic vows and was sentenced to be walled up alive. Whoa. In order to avoid this harsh penalty, he promised to create in one night a book to glorify the monastery forever, which would oh. include all human knowledge. Oh my God. Near midnight, which is pretty late to be realizing this, <laughs> he became sure that he could not complete this task <laughs> alone. So as religious figures have done to this day, he made a special prayer, not addressed to God, but to the fallen angel Lucifer, asking him to help him finish the book in exchange for his soul. And it's said that the devil completed the manuscript before the night's end, beating his own personal record. And the monk, in turn, added a very large picture of the devil as a gesture of sort of unholy gratitude for his <laughs> aid. So, the Codex Gigas, literally giant book, this is the largest extant medieval illuminated manuscript in the world at 92 centimeters long, which is 36 inches long, hmm. 50 centimeters wide, 22 centimeters thick, and weighing in at 74.8 kilograms, 165 pounds, my friend, of Damn. crazy calligraphied, highly decorated, illustrated manuscript. It is composed of 310 leaves of vellum. Claimed to have been made from the skins of 160 donkeys. Oh my god! Um, it originally contained 310 sheets, but some of these were subsequently removed for unknown purposes, obviously evil. <laughs> uh, it is also known as the Devil's Bible because of the creepy but certainly folkloric legend about its creation that I've just read. Mm-hmm. And the very unusual, very real fact that it bears an objectively spooky full-page portrait of the devil on one of its pages. Hmm. It contains the complete Vulgate Bible, Vulgate, Vulgate, I don't know, as well as other popular works, all written in Latin. Between the Old and New Testaments are a selection of other popular medieval reference works, Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, and Debello Eudeco? Oh no, I've done it again. What? Isidore of Seville's Encyclopedia Etymologiae, <laughs> the Chronicle of Cosmos of Prague? and medical works. These are an early version of the Ars uh, Medicinae, a compilation of treatises and two books by Constantine the African. Um, so it's 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 chock full. Mm-hmm. Very large illuminated Bibles were a typical feature of Romanesque monastic book production, but even within this group, the page size of the Codex Gigas is exceptional but of course along with being one of the most impressive religious documents to have ever been produced during the middle ages including basically every christian and jewish story you could ask for full hebrew greek and slavic alphabets a calendar magic formulae and various other interesting tidbits the reason i'm talking about the codex gigas now is that it is irrefutably evil (laughs) notorious page 290 otherwise empty includes a picture of the devil Standing about 50 centimeters tall, this page follows immediately after a full-page depiction of the kingdom of heaven. And just to be clear, this devil is gross. (laughs) He puts the demon in Satan, shown frontally crouching, with arms uplifted. He's clothed only in a white loincloth with small, comma-shaped red dashes that have been interpreted as the tails of ermine furs, which was a common symbol of sovereignty. Ermine? Um, He had... Ermine, sorry. He has no tail, and his body, arms, and legs are of normal human proportions, but his hands and feet end with only four fingers and toes, each terminating in large talon-like claws. He's got his horns, forked tongue, spiky teeth, all the, all the you know, classic spooky trappings. Looks like an eastern demon. He does look very eastern, actually. Pretty cool. Several pages before this double spread are written in yellow characters on a blackened parchment. 
and have a very gloomy character, apparently. Some are different than the rest of the Codex, which, given its size, is kind of potentially interesting. The reason for the variation in coloring, it's suggested, is that the pages of the Codex are vellum. Vellum, or scraped and dried animal hide, quote-unquote tans when exposed to ultraviolet light. Mm. Over the centuries, the pages that were most frequently turned had developed this telltale darker color. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, and the ones that were used for other reasons are stuck together. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, recipes. <laughs> so, the Codex came into existence in the early 13th century, possibly in the Benedictine Monastery of... Ah, uh, cannot pronounce this word. <laughs> Might I describe the letters to you? Sure. P-O-D-L-A-Z with a little nooked V thing. I-C-E. That makes less sense to me the more you say. So I'm down. Podlatsi? Podlatsis? Sure. Podlatsis? Sure. Podlatsis? I don't know. Good Lord. (laughs) Somewhere in Bohemia, a region in the modern-day Czech Republic. Codex was later pledged to the uh, Cistercians Sedlik Monastery and then bought by the Benedictine Monastery in Brevnov. Um, For over a hundred years, from 1477 to 1593, it was kept in the library of a monastery in Brumov until it was taken to Prague in 1594 to form part of a collection of the Emperor Rudolf II. Around 55 years later, at the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648, the entire collection, the entirety of Rudolf's collection, was plundered by the Swedish army. The manuscript was then kept for almost 360 years, from 1649 to 2007, in the Swedish Royal Library in Stockholm. Hmm. A National Geographic documentary included interviews with manuscript experts who argued that certain evidence, such as handwriting analysis and a credit to Herman Inclusus, uh, a.k.a. Herman the Recluse, indicates that the manuscript was the work of a single scribe. Wow. However, in tests to recreate the work... It is estimated that producing even just the calligraphy, never mind the rich illustrations and fanciful embellishments, would have taken 20 years of nonstop writing. Jeez. So it's not out of the realm of possibility, but it would have been basically one person's entire life's work or, (laughs) you know, uh, let's just say 30 to 40 years work, perhaps. Yeah. But regardless, fascinating item, uh, one of a kind, and... Kind of cool and spooky. And probably took a little more than one night to make. Yes, unless aided by the devil. <laughs> Thoughts, considerations, questions, or shall we just jump right into you? I had heard of this, I realized now, once before on, I think, another lesser podcast. Not sure which. <laughs> Can't remember. I only remember the story of the monk making the deal and then making the book. I don't remember any of the rest of it after that. Fair. So, very cool to hear about its history and how... Uh, big it is the fact that it weighs one metric jake is pretty um <laughs> yes. impressive and uh yeah very cool stuff there you have it Shall care I? to uh take us away with one of your own all right i will take us away i'm going to talk today about the london hammer also known as Ooh. the london artifact mm-hmm. uh, it's a hammer often touted as an important example of an out of place artifact an oop <laughs> actually an oop art Oopart. Um, not making yeah. that up. It's not a place. Artifacts are ooparts. Are artifacts of historical, archaeological, or paleontological interest found in an unusual context. Mm-hmm. So the context is often then taken by the young earth creationists and Giorgio Tsukaloses of the world to mean uh, evidence of history not lining up with what historians usually claim. If you don't recognize the name immediately, uh, Tsukalos is the bronzed spike-haired goofball from ancient aliens who they pretty much pull on the show to say it was ancient aliens over and over he has been memed to oblivion Mm -hmm. god rest his soul (laughs) Uh, this often means apparent evidence that the geological timeline isn't quite what we thought or technology that appears to be too advanced quote-unquote for the time period it's from armchair anthropology gets real hot bothered Mm mm-hmm so a great example of the latter is the Antikythera mechanism, which we talked about in episode 66, Timeless Cool. And in fact, oh, yes. that whole episode actually kind of, was kind of about this stuff. We both talked about things of this ilk. Uh, mm-hmm. So in episode 66, mm-hmm. we got a lot of that. 
I also covered some out-of-place artifacts in the Grand Canyon in episode 97, but that, of course, was all bullshit and covered ad nauseum. So, uh, yeah, I'll talk about the London <laughs> Hammer. Uh, all right. Yeah. So this comes, London Hammer. Are we in London right now? Uh, we are, but not that London. This uh, So this is from badarchaeology.com. I'll be reading. In June 1936, Max Edmund Hahn and his wife Emma Zadie Hahn were t- walking along Red Creek near their home in London, Texas, when they spotted a rock nodule with a piece of wood sticking out from it. It was sitting on a ledge by a waterfall on the river, not attached to any of the solid rocks around it. There are hmm. several areas where small waterfalls exist on Red Creek, the closest being about 10 kilometers southwest of London. According to hmm. some versions of the story, the discovery took place in 1934. Uh, sometimes Max is called Frank for no known reason. Homophones, basically. Exactly. Uh, sometime later, perhaps in 1946 or 1947, their son George uh, broke the nodule open to reveal a metallic hammerhead in the center to mm. which the wooden handle was attached. So they found a rock, what? had wood sticking out of it. Oh, it's kind of neat. We'll hold on to it. And then eventually their son smashed it open. And was like, oh, wait, there's a, like a hammer in here. Wow. Part of the broken nodule has survived and has an unfossilized mollusk shell partly embedded in it. What? The hammer was clearly of recent manufacture. So here is the photo. Looks like if uh, someone smashed a hammer into some raw chicken or something or cooked chicken, kind of. I guess that's <laughs> limestone. It is indeed limestone. And accretion. Um, and you can see over on the right-hand side there's a shell there. Uh, not you oh, or our patron like looking uh, in a mirror <laughs> so the idea behind this being that oh cool there is a hammer and rock and there's a shell on that rock you know how'd that get there yeah unfossilized though makes me feel like this limestone must be young af as they would say these kids these days right uh, um, but go on, tell me more. Yeah, so that ought to have been the end of the story. A 19th century quarryman or rock hound dropped a hammer near a waterfall on Red Creek. The end. However, it came to the attention of the young earth creationist Carl, I think it's pronounced Bao, B-A-U-G-H. You're familiar with him? Bao? No. Bao, I'm going to go with Bao. Uh, mm. It's unclear if Bao was alerted to the hammer by an article in the Bible Science newsletter entitled Modern Hammer in Silurian Rocks, or vice versa, whether... He prompted the article, or if he saw the article. Right. But either way, Bao purchased the object around 1983 and began to promote it as the London Artifact at his Creation Evidence Museum, which opened in 1984. Good boy. On the museum's website, Bao asks, If the artifact is truly from the Cretaceous time frame, where does this leave evolutionary theory, since man was not supposed to have evolved for another 100 million years or so? Hmm. If the artifact is relatively recent, that means that the Cretaceous Hensel sand formation from which it came is relatively young. Again, mm. where does this leave? Uh, where does that leave evolutionary theory with its traditional dates for the Cretaceous uh, formations? So yeah, the museum sells replicas of the hammer, one of its mm-hmm. star exhibits. Uh, it was mm. Bao who dubbed the hammer the London artifact, which means that all claims using this term go ultimately back to him. Mm. Uh, Bao has tried to use the hammer to show that rock could form in a very short time during Noah's flood. Uh, the people at the time of Noah were skilled metallurgists and that the Ordovician rock from which he claimed it had come could not be anything like as old as science asserts. I also want to point out that the hammer is variously attributed to the Cretaceous, Silurian, and Ordovician periods. Right. Which, yeah. uh, so the Cretaceous was 145 to 66 million years ago. Uh, the Silurian right. period was 443.8 to 419.2 million years ago, so quite a bit older. Yep, and quite a bit. And the Ordovician was just prior uh, from 485.4 to 443.8 million years the ago. The Silurian is older than the Cretaceous, then the Cretaceous is older than we are today. It's that far away, yeah. It's ridiculously yeah. far. I'll link to a really nice uh, video. I think it's by PBS Digital Studios or something. Or maybe it's NPR. One of the public broadcasting type things mm-hmm. showing the entire history of Earth expressed on a linear scale on a football field oh, cool. to show the just length of time and how much time stuff occurred in and it gives you a real good scale idea of how far apart things are oh boy all this is just to say that hot damn is there no consensus on when this hammer is supposed to be from even on the parts of folks who are trying to make stuff up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. despite someone almost immediately debunking bow he uh like when he first started pitching this thing as evidence of his whole deal uh he to this day continues to use the hammer as evidence for high technology in the distant past and the relatively recent formation 
of much of the geological column during the mythical flood of Noah. One of its principal selling points is the allegedly impossible composition of the iron in the hammerhead. Uh, Walter Lang appears to be the first to claim that the hammer had been studied by metallurgists at a laboratory in Columbus, which has widely been taken to mean a Battelle Memorial Institute. Hmm. Creationists still like to repeat this. However, that claim was directly rebutted in the February 1985 issue of Creation Ex Nihilo. According to Lang, the scientists, quote, were convinced that the rock itself could not have been formed except where there was a great deal of water and pressure, end quote, and that the hmm. handle had been, quote, partly coalified under pressure with water and volcanic action. Hmm. So if the Battelle Institute did not supply these data, where did Lang get the opinions? Might right. they have come from Bao? The nodule in which the hammer is embedded is the real source of the claims of antiquity. If mm-hmm. it is genuinely part of the local geology, then it potentially provides evidence either for the recent formation of the rocks, as Bao would like, or it provides evidence of humans or human-like technology in the very remote past. Right. However, there is no evidence whatsoever that the nodule was ever part of the bedrock, which incidentally is Cretaceous, not Ordovician in date. Go figure. Um, so huh. the the rock that it's supposed to be embedded in is is not actually part of the bedrock there and is potentially made of stuff older than that bedrock. Wow. It says, remember, it was found on a ledge near a waterfall. This is the key to understanding the object. The Hmm. nodule is not a detached part of the bedrock, but a concretion made from once dissolved carbonate minerals that precipitated out as the water evaporated. In other words, the nodule could easily be of 19th century date. So if it's made of limestone, it's a pretty soluble rock. It's Mm. the reason that we have caves Mm -hmm. when water runs through. It dissolves it and washes it away and carves away and over time. As rocks go, pretty soft. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, so it's very possible that a lot of limestone could be dissolved in water and just flowing through it. That's why hard water is a thing, is stuff like that kind of being dissolved in water. Right. And... uh, if enough of that surrounds something and then the water evaporates and leaves the mineral behind, you could have just this kind of what they call a concretion of the minerals just encasing a thing, in this case, part of a hammer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the nodule could just be from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Instead, we see the claim for relative antiquity parroted on websites, sometimes with reference to a book by Hans Joachim Zilmer called mm. Darwin's Mistake. Antediluvian oh, no. discoveries prove dinosaurs and humans coexisted. From Frontier oh, Publishing, 1998. Uh, 98? Yeah. All right. Zilmer makes a great play of the chemical composition of the hammerhead, as I referenced earlier, reporting that it consists of, quote, 96.6% iron, 2.6% chlorine, and 0.74% sulfur. This is the analysis that is often wrongly attributed to the Battelle Memorial Institute. Those dependent on this unsourced analysis have tried to claim that this is an impossibly pure form of iron and that iron cannot be combined with chlorine. Hmm. The point here being that not only was this iron worked by humans, but it was done using unknown, almost impossible technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These claims are nonsense. For one mm-hmm. thing, steel contains 99 to 99.8% iron, while many iron ores, such as biotite or meteoric iron, naturally contain chlorine. So it's not mm-hmm. a question of adding it. Uh, finally, the idea that the handle has turned to coal is just flat-out untrue. Mm-hmm, uh, it's mm-hmm. quite visibly wood. You can see in the picture I have... Uh, even in the picture, yeah. Yeah, that was actually a pretty crappy picture, but even then it's pretty easy to tell. It has a clearer yeah, totally. picture where it's still obvious. Although the ends apparently show a little carbonization. Carbonization is a process that can happen to vegetable matter, especially wood, on heating. It is not partly mm. coalified. If anything, it's on the way to becoming charcoal. So mm-hmm. it may have been a little bit burnt at some point or something, but... Conclusion, the London artifact is a hammer partly embedded in a concretion. There is no evidence whatsoever that the nodule was ever part of the Red Creek's geology, which is the lower Cretaceous Hensel Sand Formation. These Hmm. deposits are thought to be roughly 110 to 115 million years old. Uh, Having acquired the object in the early 1980s, Bao promoted it as a pre-Noachian, or I'm not sure how you say Noachian, artifact in other words hmm. dating from a time before the mythical flood of noah oh i see <laughs> uh yeah i don't that's why i don't know how it's supposed to be said because it's not a thing <laughs> it was soon pointed out by a geologist that minerals dissolved from ancient strata can harden around a recent object making it hmm. look impressive to someone unfamiliar with or willfully ignorant of geological there you, processes there you go yeah uh, in fact, the style of the hammer would lead us to recognize it as 19th century in date and of definitely american providence Wow. Well, there you go. The whole story of it.
people have claimed that the rock was uh, dated to be uh, a common number I see is 400 million years old. <laughs> what it's it's confusing because different parties trying to make similar conclusions are saying either that the rock is really young and so this is all a pre-Noah thing and all of our ideas about geology and evolution and everything are wrong or that the rock is super old and therefore so is the hammer and thus humans were around forever ago and right. either way or some kind of technology was at least yeah but then the people who were saying that like bow will not give up the hammer to be dated you could use radiological mm. d- uh, testing to determine the age of the rock you could use carbon 14 dating to um, find out how old the wood is It'd be mm-hmm. very easy to determine how old everything involved is but he's but sitting on it exactly because that tells you everything yeah. you need to know a charlatan if ever there was one yes so that's my first um, story for the day <laughs> nice um safe to assume this is roughly the midpoint of the show mm-hmm. and i think it's safe to assume it's roughly time to talk about Beer. uh sweet little brewery <laughs> just nooked away in the westernmost part of massachusetts not that far over. Uh, true. <laughs> um, in Pioneer Valley, right along the, the splashing, crashing waters of the Connecticut, <laughs> there is a place that, oh, I don't know, merges aspects of Dungeons and Dragons, heavy metal, and of course beer to make a beverage that could only be called beer. <laughs> and that place is Four Phantoms. Four Phantoms Brewing who are so kindly supporting our show. Yeah. Their beer is delicious. Yes, and it's available for curbside pickup uh, for the last several weeks, and including this week, we're going to keep linking to where you can do that, as well as just to their website in general. Oh, yes. They also want you to know that if you are a service industry worker, musician, artist, who has suffered from COVID-19, uh, you can reach out at 4 Phantoms Beer. That's F-O-U-R-P-H-A-N-T-O-M-S b-e-e-r at gmail.com to arrange pickup of free beer for yourself Mm -hmm. um restriction being of course that you will have to live in or travel to western mass be physically capable of making the pickup and it's yours exactly and if you're a little bit creeped out about going out to purchase some beer or you simply live too far away to do so take it from us it's good and please do consider supporting four phantoms by leaving them a favorable and create a review at untapped.com. This is U-N-T-A-P-P-D.com. It's basically the Yelp of beer, and it'll help boost their profile and support a kind supporter of our show and a very cool brewery at that. Yeah, we'll link to that in the description as well. And now back to the show. Mm-hmm. So my second of two items today is sort of a realm of items called Rongo Rongo, mm. which is a Rapa Nui word that somehow Microsoft Office recognizes as in no need of correction while otherwise calibrated for standard American English. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> no red squiggles to be found here. I misspelled Cretaceous earlier and Google Docs was like, no, it's fine. You're good. I was like, no, it's not. Cretaxicalis is correct. (laughs) So, right, the story. Eugene Arrowed was a lay friar of the Congregation de Picpus and a bit of a travel fiend getting his butt all the way to Easter Island from France on January 2nd, 1864. He was to remain on Easter Island for nine months, evangelizing its inhabitants, Mm. like the twerp he was. And it was during this time that he engaged in one of the more popular hobbies of Westerners on vacation (laughs) to this day, journaling and cataloging pretty much anything he could about the non-Western people onto whom he chose to travel around the world to push his cult of belief. Mm -hmm. And I figure I'll talk about Easter Island, or one of us will, another time, as it has a cool and mysterious story of its own. Totally. But for now, we can just follow on Eugene's writings, which read as, quote, In every hut, one finds wooden tablets or sticks covered in several sorts of hieroglyphic characters. They are depictions of animals unknown on the island, which the natives draw with sharp stones. Each figure has its own name, but the scant attention they pay to these tablets leads me to think that these characters remnants of some primitive writing are now for them of habitual practice which they keep without seeking its meaning 
unquote. So these hieroglyphic characters carved mostly into wooden objects are referred to by their contemporary name, Rongo Rongo, which is a Rapa Nui phrase meaning to recite, to declaim, to chant. Why am I talking about this? Mm. They are cool and spooky because while some date and family lineage type information has been tentatively teased out of the glyphs, they remain largely undeciphered to this day. Hmm. There's even some debate about whether they represent writing at all, potentially embodying a form of sort of proto-writing symbology. However, if Rongo Rongo does prove to be writing and proves to be an independent invention, it would be one of just a few independent origins of writing in human history. Oh, cool. Which is pretty fascinating. Not having some kind of roots back to something earlier. Exactly. It would have been a true, truly independent emergence. So what does it do? What does it look like? The glyphs are carved as a series of standardized contours of living organisms and geometric designs, uh, each only about a centimeter high. The wooden tablets are irregular in shape and in many instances fluted, which means they have thin channels that have been cut through, with the glyphs carved in shallow channels running the length of the tablets. It is thought that the irregular and often blemished pieces of wood these are found on were used in their entirety rather than squared off due to the scarcity of wood on the island. If you don't already know, Easter Island is uh, famously, what would you say, depauperate of trees? (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of any other word I would use. Uh, There are at present only 26 Rangarango texts left in existence with letter codes inscribed on wooden objects, each with between 2 and 2,320 simple glyphs and components of compound glyphs for over 15,000 characters total, which is a pretty substantial number uh, overall, but still limited when it comes to, you know, language. Sure. There are an estimated 120 glyphs in total with as many as 480 variations chalked up to allographs or what they call ligatures, which uh, in text refers to the joining of multiple letters or characters into a compound. So... Hmm. Um, for our Western audience, you can think of the A and E in English script that join uh, into that funky, fancy AE symbol pronounced as I, I believe. I've seen it both ways as a diphthong. I've heard being, it as an E or an I. Yeah, always. I think like Caesar or Kaiser. Right. Although I think the, the, the E is correct. Most correct, at least based on pronunciation sort of suggestions I heard earlier today. Yeah. Uh, another cool feature, Rongo Rongo glyphs were written in a format called Reverse Bastrophodon. What? Uh, which could absolutely be a, a sex move based on a dinosaur. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will grant you that. Um, <laughs> what this means is that to read Rongo Rongo, you would begin at the bottom left-hand corner of a tablet, read a line from left to right, then rotate the tablet 180 degrees to continue on to the next line. Ooh. As such, when reading one line, the lines above and below will always appear upside down. The writing continues onto the second side of a tablet at the point where it finishes off on the first. So, in the case that there are an odd number of lines on the first side, apparently, the second side starts at the upper left-hand corner instead of the bottom left. Huh. So... You then shift your writing direction from top to bottom in this case. So it's a very interesting method, uh, I think, for folks trained in just simply going, well, in what we would consider simply going from left to right, top to bottom. But why not rotate the thing around if you're going to carve? Well, the idea, I was at first thinking, well, that seems like it'd be more complicated to try and read or to write. But then when you mentioned the idea that it consequently results in each line being surrounded by lines that are upside down right that kind of isolates the line you're focused on in a way that normal text does not so you're not as likely to skip ahead necessarily you're really kind of zeroed in on what you're reading as you're reading it that's true yeah which could be that much more meaningful in the context of like a spiritual text which i believe these are kind of Mm -hmm. um i mean you probably could have guessed it lumped into uh so What's the origin? The story gets even more intriguing as we look to the materials into which these symbols are carved. According to tradition, the tablets were made of Toromira wood. I may be mispronouncing this. However, researcher Catherine Orliak uh, published a series of works in which she examined 
Rongo Rongo objects with stereo optical and scanning electron microscopes. Mm-hmm. And through her work, she determined that several were inscribed not on Toromiro, but instead made from Pacific rosewood, which is a large tree mm-hmm. called uh, Mako-i in Rapa Nui, used for sacred groves and carvings throughout eastern Polynesia, and was evidently brought to Easter Island by the first settlers. Other carvings are done on wood brought from the other side of the globe, South African yellow wood. Wow. Um, indicating creation post-contact with Western explorers and colonizers. In 1914, British archaeologist and anthropologist Catherine Rutledge undertook a year-long scientific expedition to Rapa Nui with her husband to catalog the art, customs, and writing of the island. She was able to interview two elderly inhabitants, a person by the name of Capiera and a leper named Tomonika, who allegedly had some knowledge of Rongo Rongo. Although the interviewees often contradicted each other, Rutledge was able to conclude that Rongo Rongo was an idiosyncratic mnemonic device that did not directly represent language. Hmm. Uh, In other words, it was a form of proto-writing. The meanings of the glyphs were reformulated by each scribe so that any given corpus could not be read by someone not specifically trained in that text. Wow. Right? Uh, The texts themselves, she believed, to be litanies for priest scribes that recorded the island's history and mythology. Um, They were kept apart in special houses and strictly tapu, um, which is a Rapa Nui term for things that are holy, sacred, generally off limits to all but the most spiritual persons or events. So, going forward, can we decode them? There are three serious obstacles to decipherment, apparently, uh, assuming Rongo Rongo is truly writing. First, the small number of remaining texts limits, uh, you know, just limits how much resource we have to go on. Mm-hmm. Second, the lack of context, such as illustrations, in which to interpret these uh, handful of texts. And third, the poor at, uh, attestation, <laughs> clearly my word. Oh, yeah, well. Of the old Rapa Nui language, since modern Rapa Nui is heavily mixed with Tahitian and is mm. therefore unlikely to closely reflect the language of the tablets themselves. Gotcha. So many degrees of remove from the source. Attempts to decipher to date have been nonsensical, verging on, I mean, I would think hilarious <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> um, I won't get too far into it for time's sake, but in one instance, ethnographer Irina Fedorova published purported translations of two full tablets and portions of four others. Hers were apparently more rigorous than most other attempts as she restricts each glyph to a single logographic reading. So basically any given image only means one thing. Mm -hmm. To secure some of the following phrasings, which I will now read, quote, He cut a rangi sugarcane, a tara yam. He cut lots of taro of stocks. He cut a yam, he harvested. He cut a yam, he cut. He pulled up. He cut a hanui. He cut a sugarcane. He cut. He harvested. He took. He chose a kihi. He took a kihi. He harvested a yam. A poporo. A calabash. He pulled up a yam. He cut. He cut one plant. He cut one plant. A yam. He cut a banana. He harvested a sugarcane. He cut a taro. He cut a kahu yam. A yam, a yam, <laughs> and other texts are similar. They say things like he takes a whiskey drink, he takes a vodka <laughs> drink, he takes a lager drink, he takes a cider yes. drink, etc., etc. <laughs> um, yes, another text: a root, a root, a root, a root, a Is root. Is on fire? A root. Yes, <laughs> a tuber. He took. He cut a potato tuber. He dug up yam shoots. A yam tuber. A potato tuber. A tuber. <laughs> All of this, which even Fedorova characterizes as, quote, worthy of a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> she found another one that all she could interpret it as was just saying, I'll work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. <laughs> exactly. Over and over again. Yeah, all Rongo Rongo and no <laughs> full sentence structure. Um, so, right. The prevailing opinion is that Rongo Rongo is not true writing, but proto-writing, or even a more limited mnemonic device for genealogy, 
choreography, navigation, astronomy, or agriculture, or perhaps all of the above. And it might reveal who the Zodiac Killer was. Yeah, yeah, they they predicted the Zodiac Killer's identity, <laughs> which was, of course, a root, a root, a root. Um, the Atlas of Languages states, quote, it was probably used as a memory aid or for decorative purposes, not for recording the Rapa Nui language of the islanders, which, if this is the case... There may be little hope of ever deciphering it, and worse, if it were to be deciphered, may reveal essentially the Rapa Nui equivalent of a complex array of live, laugh, love, wall, shart works. (laughs) Um, But until then, I will leave you with this. Always remember, sea turtle shape, boat shape series of chevrons parallel vertical boxes, or you won't shark shape, frigate bird shape, seated man possibly eating shape? <laughs> Words and shapes to live by. <laughs> uh take it away, Jake. Great. <laughs> so uh yeah, my fi- uh, final story for today deals with uh well, for starters I'll be quoting from an article by mechanical engineer Roberto Velasquez Cabrera, who has made a lifelong study including the physical reconstruction of ancient Mexican resonators and other wind instruments. He's the founder of the Mexico City-based Instituto Virtual de Investigación Slapitzal Calcin. Oh, I know that one. Yes. Uh, So there's a special type of whistle, this is from his article, there's a special type Mm -hmm. of whistle that was exclusively used in several zones of ancient Mexico and that belongs to a very unusual family of Mexican resonators that are not well known which can produce special hmm. sounds imitating animal calls and the noise of the wind or storms. Mm-hmm. So as an initial more lighthearted example of the kind of wicked awesome Mesoamerican engineering Cabrera is talking about, I have with me this cute little bird. Hey. See, I like that little bird. Yeah, it's pretty cute. Yeah. And it is pretty little. Yes. So this is just made of clay. I, I'm not specifically sure if this is from Mexico or where exactly. Uh, this is a gift from... I guess sister-in-law of the show, Olivia, I'm not sure if you're listening, but thank you for this nice Christmas gift a couple years ago. Aww. So if you just blow into it, it makes just a basic kind of airy, whistly sound. But if you put mm-hmm. water into it, this is what happens. Oh, yes. Go on. What the fuck? That is so cool. It's awesome. It's just oh yeah, my very God. cool design so that when, when the air is passing through the water, it makes that very distinctive chirping sound. It's just a cool example of the kind of shit that people were able to make back then. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. I'm also going to link to a 1988 New York Times article about the engineering and craft behind these important instruments of these cultures. Uh, a lot of cool stuff, similar to, but different from this. Just, they were making cool shit, is the point there. Certainly. Uh, anyway, the particular whistle in question for this segment is not a common whistle or a musical instrument. It has been associated with death rituals by its decorated face of a skull and with the wind because two examples are found in front mm. of the temple of a Hecatl, the wind god, at mm. Tlatel... Uh, Tlatel... Sorry. <laughs> Mesoamerican languages are not easy. Right. I'm deeply satisfied to watch you sweat. <laughs> yes. Go on again. Try it one more time. Uh, at Tlatelolco. Uh, what he's referring I'm to sure here is fine. the discovery in 1999 of the skeleton of a 20-year-old male who had been ritually sacrificed. Auspicious year. Yes. Only human. Uh, Tlatelolco was an Aztec city-state located in what is now Mexico City, and the skeleton was found there holding in each hand a skull-shaped whistle. Whoa. Uh, Here is what one of those looks like. Nothing ominous about that at all. No, it looks creepy. (laughs) So it's yeah, like it, a pipe that would kill you if you smoked out of it. Yes. Yeah, so imagine finding a skeleton that was sacrificed holding one of those in each hand. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the first thing you want to do is blow it. Yeah, put that so in my mouth. Uh, back to the article. Uh, it says, unfortunately, the exact original use and purpose of the death whistle and many other ancient resonators have been lost. There death are some, whistle, huh? Some ancient death whistles made of clay in museums and collections, but very few of their studies and sounds have been published. This Ugh. is the first paper in English on the death whistle posted on the internet. So this article I'm reading from mm-hmm. is it's the first English article about it. Uh, it was Jose Luis Franco who published the first 1971 drawings of the death whistle and his family of Mexican aerophones with springs of air. 
a mm. drawing by Franco shows a whistle with the decorative face of a skull, which points to its original purpose as a death whistle. Another drawing by Franco shows the internal structure of a death whistle with the decorative face of an owl. In Mexican mm. cultures, the owl is associated with the coming of death. So the main Gross. technical elements of the death whistle are shown in the cross section of this illustrative model. So I will also send you a photo of the cross section. He Ooh. was able to uh, reconstruct different versions of these whistles and then could actually uh, um, cool. break down what they had going on. All the photos Cabrera refers to are in the article too. I'm just I'm linking to them individually so you can just see the picture and not have to look at the whole article. And I will of course link mm. to all of it for our listeners to check out themselves. Very cool looking mm. stuff. The only known ancient death whistles with archaeological context were published by Salvador Guillem Oroyo in 1999. The, the dig I was talking about. They were recovered from mm. the hands of the skeleton of a sacrificed 20 year old man who was found buried in front of the Ejecatl Wind Temple of Tlatelolco. Wow. So this finding indicates that the whistles are associated with Ejecatl and the wind and Mictlantelcutli death. Hmm. Uh, and they could be related to the ritual of sacrifice. Hmm. If the whistles were associated with Ejecatl or the wind, the sounds of the whistles may have been required to simulate the sounds of wind because a strong wind cannot simply be summoned whenever the occasion requires as in a ritual or ceremony. So what he's saying is mm-hmm. if this was meant to be ceremonial when dealing with the wind god, these whistles could maybe evoke the sound of a howling wind and right. just be appropriate to Facilitate the situation. Facilitate the yeah. Yeah. ceremony at hand. Yes. The only reference to the possible ancient use of this type of whistle comes from the following text. This is from Myths of Mexico and Peru by Lewis Spence in 1910, who says, quote, The most remarkable festival in connection with Tetzcatlipoca was the Tuxcatl, held in the fifth month. On the day of this festival, a youth was slain who, for an entire year previously, had been carefully instructed in the role of victim. He assumed the name, garb, and attributes of um, Tetzcatlipoca himself as the earthly representative of the deity. He carried also the whistle symbolical of the deity as Lord of the Night Wind and made with it a noise such as the weird wind of night makes when it hurries through the streets. Uh, So some folks had already been hypothesizing on how the rituals worked, and then the whistles discovered later on seemed to fit with this. Cabrera wanted to know more, however. He then, in the article, goes on to describe the process of reconstruction of these whistles by studying a few different ones that they found. In short, he was successful. He continues... Hmm. More research remains to be done in the future on the effects of their sounds. For example, we know that when two or more similar ancient whistles or their models are played at the same time, special effects can be produced due to the vibrations generated or phantom sounds. Hmm. He's talking about things like overtones. Like and Binks or but... A little different than that. But hmm. um, if the beats are infrasonic, too low for the human ear to detect, they may alter states of consciousness. We talked about infrasound plenty of times on the show. Right, absolutely. Several death whistles played at the same time can generate very complex vibrations because their noisy signals are produced in a range of frequencies, mm-hmm. and the effects on humans is significant due to the intensity and range of their main frequencies. Mm-hmm. But their effects on health have not yet been analyzed formally. Mm-hmm. So, in general, he's saying these whistles can produce a complex variety of sounds all at the same time, a, a range of frequencies, and if you play more than one at the same time, those compound and get real weird. We don't know specifically what that does to somebody, but it seems like there could be something there, and That's it's kind of so cool. cool. I can't imagine a lot of people wanting to sign up for uh, death whistle <laughs> exposure <laughs> yes. studies. Uh, an experimental dual model of the death whistle with the faces of Hikatl and Mictlantecutli has already been used to test the possibility of the two whistles found at Tlatelolco being played at the same time. So people oh, wow. have tested... What it sounds like if you take the two whistles that that skeleton was holding and play them at the same time, what does that sound like? And he says the sounds generated are similar to those of a storm. The produced frequencies are more complex and of greater intensity than those of single whistle models. Do we have this to here now? Well, I'm getting there, Mr. Shell. Oh, you're saving dessert. Oh, all yeah. right, all right, all right. I'll so wait, I'll This wait. all sounds like some pretty damn cool archaeology. It does, uh, it does. They found some whistles, they figured out how to recreate them, and they know what they sound like. There are right. still two questions left unanswered in just this writing part of it, though. Uh, what exactly was the purpose of the whistles, and what did those some bitches sound like? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. General ceremonial use is a straightforward enough answer, uh, but another popular theory is that the whistles could be used when marching to battle as a form of psychological weapon. Whoa. For more information on this particular theory, I'm going to turn the mic over to 
Javier Quijas y Jayaro, a master indigenous instrument maker. He specializes in recreating and playing Aztec and Mayan instruments in order wow. to keep indigenous culture alive. That's so cool. Uh, yeah, his tagline on his website is simply, quote, I make the earth sing. So, yeah, mm. super cool guy. And here is what he has to say regarding death whistles. I want to share with you this very unique instrument. We call the death whistle. I may have seen this before. Aztec use for special ceremonies for Day of the Dead celebration. And also they use when they have a war, when they fight with other tribes. They play over a hundred instruments, a hundred dead whistles, marching and make a lot of noise to cause a big psychological effects mm. to the enemy. So this is very intimidating instruments and this is very unique. So this is the dead whistle. Wow. All right, here we go. Oh my God. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> wow. Very, very cool. That's spooky as hell. I can imagine yeah. <laughs> being quite scared. So put a bunch of those together. Have If you had multiple people blowing those while charging the battle, it would be horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. But if you had a bunch of people blowing these going to battle be a little bit of a different story <laughs> indeed oh i much i would much prefer to fight that <laughs> war but i feel like it would be fought with hugs yeah <laughs> <laughs> my kind of fighting um that's awesome wow very spooky very cool so yeah that is uh my uh my second story and with that goodbye <laughs> no we shouldn't do that i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us this week. If you want to join us next week, we're going to have a very special uh, couple of guests with us next time. Oh, yeah. We're about to be uh, doing that. <laughs> 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 It'll be a slightly fuller house. Do want to give away exactly who will be on? The hosts of Real Life Ghost Stories. <laughs> might be here. <laughs> might not. And we might be there. We might not. <laughs> who knows? It's we impossible don't. to say. I don't even know how or why we would buy a plane ticket at this time to fly to Britain <laughs> to record an episode with them. Uh, it's an extremely dangerous time to travel, but mm-hmm. I think we will, and we did, and we have already done so. Great. Yep. It was good. You're going to love it. And yeah, so look forward to that. Bye. Bye. <laughs>